uh, get started again with uh, our Liberty in the Pines event. Uh, we have uh, the bulk of our program to come, a uh, number of speakers. Uh, we were also uh, are going to have a uh, Q&A with Dr. Walter Block later on, as well as a panel session with all of our speakers and a really great chance to have them interact with one another and interact with you as an audience. So, uh, to get us kick-started again here in our post-lunch program, I'm going to, again, hand the microphone over to uh, Yale member Jonathan Hubbard. People uh, aren't too drowsy after lunch, but um, they took our coffee away, so that's like the worst time, right? But in any case, uh, if anybody does want coffee, do you know if the Starbucks... Starbucks is open, I think? Yeah, yeah Starbucks, there's a Starbucks across the street from campus. It's really close by. So you can get some coffee there if you need, really need it. And do you know if the student center? Student open? center one. And, and I believe there's a Starbucks in our student center that is open. I'm not sure. I know it's there, but I'm not sure if it's open. So that's out this door, and then that way you'll see a big building to your right. And it's pretty obviously student center. So anyway, um, our next speaker is a, uh, a patent attorney from Houston and a very uh, long-time defender of liberty. He's written lots and lots of articles and a very fantastic book, a very important book, I think, called Against Intellectual Property. And uh, you can just Google it and find the book because that's kind of the <laughs> part of the premise of the book. Um, is that idea should be free. And so um, I really don't have anything else to say because, it's, it's, see, the guy's credentials are so long that it would take forever to... to Explain them to everybody or whatever, and, and say them. So I hope you guys can, uh, you know, stay awake and enjoy <laughs> Mr. Stefan Kinsella. Thanks. Test, test. Uh, I'll do my best. Um, I thought that the best thing to keep people awake after a long lunch on a Saturday would be a talk about John Locke, 17th century philosopher. <laughs> uh, the title is, uh, well, I've slightly changed it, Locke's Big Mistake, How the Labor Theory of Property Ruined Political Theory. And I'll try to explain why I think this is interesting and very relevant to our fight for liberty. Let me start with a question. Who, who was the most evil man of all history? Any guesses? Any? There's no wrong answers. Well, there's some wrong answers. But. Mao. Mao. Who did Ayn Rand think was the most evil man in all history? Yeah, she said Kant is the most evil man in mankind's history. Well, I mean, you might not agree with his idealism, some of his philosophy, but he was a pretty good classical liberal, so I don't know if I can agree with that. Ayn Rand uh, was known for rhetorical excesses. She also said patents are the heart and core of property rights. Now, even if you believe in intellectual property, that one's hard to swallow. But I'll give her some credit, too. She also has a rhetorical line that I love uh, in her money speech, which was, uh, run for your life from any man who tells you that money is evil. That sentence is the leper's bell of the approaching looter. Love that line. I feel that way when people say they disagree with the idea of self-ownership. I'm like, well, I'm going to keep an eye on you. <laughs> um, well, I don't think Kant was the most evil man in all history, and I don't think Locke was either, but I do want to have a similar thesis to Ayn Rand, is that it's identifying one big mistake in political theory and philosophy. Uh, I don't think Locke did this on purpose. I think he did a lot of good, and I'm going to try to identify what I think is good in Locke and what mistake he made. Um, I won't even say he's evil, although he was a uh, sort of racist defender of the slave trade, but that's ad hominem, and we never do that here. Uh, but parts of his argument have caused a lot of serious problems in political theory, um, 
in the meantime. Now, why is this? Before I get into the details, in my view, I've been thinking about libertarianism for over 25 years, and I've come to the conclusion that one problem we face is overuse of metaphors and imprecise use of language and clear thinking. We can't abolish it completely, but we have to be wary of the dangers of using metaphors and imprecise language and unclear thinking. Uh, one of America's most famous uh, Supreme Court justices, before he was a justice, when he was a judge, said in 1926, uh, metaphors in law are to be narrowly watched for starting as devices to liberate thought, they often end up enslaving it. He's right. I mean, you could ask, what's a metaphor? And in Louisiana, we might say, it's so to explain things better. But sometimes there's problems. Austrians like Bon Bavirk, Mises, Guido Holzmann, they've all written on all the dangers of using metaphorical language. For example, all these scientific metaphors are used to explain the economy, like friction or momentum, right? The economy has green shoots right now, or maybe doesn't have green shoots. Talk about prices communicating knowledge or coordinating behavior. Uh, and also mixing of labor, which I'm going to uh, talk a little bit here. Uh, let me ask a question, just a show of hands of the audience. Who here believes that you own your body? Okay. Who here knows pretty much what your body is? Okay. It's hard to say you own your body if you don't know what it is. Now, there's a difference, though, between whether you do own your body and whether you should own your body. Who thinks here that you own yourself? Now, who knows what their self really is? I don't know what my self really is. I mean, it's not as concrete of an idea as body ownership, right? So when we talk about self-ownership in libertarianism, really, I think we're talking about body ownership. So the question is always, who owns your body? Me or someone else? Do you believe in your own control of yourself or your body, I should say, or slavery? That's the fundamental choice. And if you talk in clear language, these things uh, uh, become clearer. We also have to distinguish between factual questions or legal questions and normative questions. If I say, do you own yourself, you're really thinking, should I own myself, right? So the question is, should you own yourself and do you own yourself are separate questions. I would say you don't own yourself completely under today's legal system because the government maintains the right to draft you, throw you in jail for doing drugs, to take your money if you don't pay taxes, or, or to put you in jail if you don't pay taxes. So I think we're only partly self-owners in today's society. Um, as Stephen Molyneux mentioned earlier, a slave is someone who is a 100% tax victim. Right? So we have to distinguish between should and, and facts. So there are some ideas, words, and terms which I think we ought to try to avoid or at least be very careful of when we use them. Let me go through a few of those. One is conflating government with society and state, or conflating society with state, or conflating government with state, or conflating con country with state. The problem is, if you say you're against the government, people think you're against law and order because they think you're against the governing institutions of society, when really we're against the state. Okay? So what libertarians are against is the state. The state currently monopolizes and runs the government, the, the governing organizations of society, law, justice, uh, order. The state also runs the roads, but we don't say we're against roads, do we? We say we're against government roads, or state roads, we should say, just like we say we're against state education. Okay? So we have to be careful when we say we're against government because you'll have minarchists or regular people think that you're for chaos and lawlessness, sort of anarchist, uh, the idea of the anarchist with the bomb. So we have to say we're against the state, if you want to be clear and precise. Another one is people say, well, I'm against coercion, I'm a libertarian, or I'm against violence. Well, no, we're not against violence, and we're not even against coercion. We're against aggression. 
Aggression is the initiated use of force or the initiated violence or initiated coercion. Coercion is just a type of force, right? It means to use force to compel someone to do something. Someone's breaking in my house, you're, you're, you know, I'm going to coerce the guy, and it's rightful. So we're not against coercion, we're not against force, we're not against violence. We're against initiated force, coercion, and violence, or aggression. Another one, which I'll deal with in a few minutes, is labor versus action. People always talk about owning the fruits of your labor, uh, uh, people have a right to sell their labor, these kinds of things. They act like labor is some special thing. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, labor is just a type of action. Humans own their bodies. We act in certain ways. That's human action. Labor is just a type of action, maybe a subset of action. What kind of action is it? It's action that you has disutility, some people say. It's not leisure. It's not fun. You do it to get some end. But it's just one type of action. Okay? And then there's, of course, intellectual property, which begs the question just by saying it that way. Right? Some of us don't think it should be property, so don't call it property to prove that it should be treated as property. It's better to call it an intellectual privilege or just call it patent and copyright, what, what the government calls it. Finally, another one, which uh, Jeff Tucker and I were talking about on the way up here this morning, is the idea of limited government. This one always bugs me because you know, every government that's ever existed is limited. There's never been an unlimited government. I mean, maybe the Nazis, maybe the Russians at a certain point in time. But every government has limits, or every state, I should say, right? Has limits on what it can do. Um, and almost everyone believes in some limits. So the welfare liberals believe in a limited government. They just want the limits to be a lot less than we would like. So what defines a conservative, I mean, an ultra-minimalist conservative, or a classical liberal, or a libertarian? It's not that we believe in limited government. It's what limits we believe there should be on the state, right? And the most consistent, most radical libertarians think that the limits should be complete. It means the state should have nothing it could do whatsoever. In other words, the state should die and not exist. But even a minarchist believes that the limits should be completely um, uh, so tight that the state can only do a few minimal functions, defense, police, and courts. Okay? So when you say limited government, that doesn't really distinguish us from, from others. Okay? So in thinking about how to define the essence of libertarianism over the years, I think the best way to think of it is that we, we recognize that we are all people who live in society with each other. We all at least the civilized people among us. We generally want our own lives to be good, and we also favor peace and prosperity. We want our neighbors to be good, and we like living in society with each other. And we all realize the following. We realize, now this is Mises I'm going to go into here a little bit. Mises was, uh, in my mind, the, the greatest uh, Austrian economist, and he developed a theory called praxeology. That's the, the logic or the science of human action. So what Mises says is, just, and this is not, it sounds funny, it's a weird word. It took me a long time to understand it, like epistemology took 17 years before I finally started using the word, right? I'm still not there with ontology, but with epistemology and praxeology, I am. Mises says, look, it's common sense. Look at human action. What do human beings do in their lives? Every moment of their lives, they're taking an action. Now, an action means you're, you're an intelligent, rational person. You understand something about the world. You know that the future is coming and you envision something about the future you think is going to happen that you're not satisfied with or that you want to change. This is what human action is. We don't think of it like this, but this is what we do in every moment of our lives. And we also realize that we have the ability to affect that future. How? By using what Mises calls scarce means. These are things in the world that you can use to change the course of the future, including your body and including things that we find, tools, basically. 
And we have some understanding or some knowledge in our, in our mind that we've accumulated from human civilization and from society in the past, from others, from learning, from emulation. We have some knowledge about what we think is coming, what we think might satisfy us better than what would come if we don't take an action, and what means are available and how they will causally change things. So that's what human action is. It's understanding, making a choice, uh, grabbing some kind of means, and employing that means to change the future. This is how we have to understand human action. And within that framework, we can understand libertarianism is the idea that we understand that these means are scarce. Scarce means rivalrous. It means only one person can use this thing at a time. Uh, otherwise, you'll have two or more people fighting over this thing, clashing over it, having conflict, violent disagreement. So an example would be you know, baking a cake. Everyone, you need a recipe, which is the knowledge of how to make the cake, and you need the tools, the capital equipment, the ingredients, the raw materials. Only one person can use this egg at a time to make the cake, or this wooden spoon, or this bowl, or this oven, right? But any number of people could use their own eggs and their own ingredients, all using the same recipe or the same knowledge at the same time. This is exactly why the, the intellectual property idea is so fallacious. Intellectual property seeks to grant property rights in the ideas as well as we do in the scarce means. It makes no sense because you don't need to put property rights in the ideas because they're not scarce. There's no, the entire purpose of property rights is to uh, permit conflicts to be avoided in the use of the scarce means of action. So we can all go about our daily business and our plans, cooperating with each other, trading with each other, uh, helping each other, selling to each other, using our own scarce resources with the legally recognized exclusive right to control it. That's what property rights are. That's what ownership is. It makes no sense to grant these rights in, in ideas. Now, I'm not going to go into that in detail. That's the entire intellectual property argument I've been making for a few years now. But I just want to put it in the framework. This is what the libertarian idea is. Now, what does this have to do with Locke? Okay. So the way to reformulate this is to think that the essence of libertarianism is a very simple set of rules. As I mentioned earlier, we can't say we're for limited government because that doesn't distinguish us from other schools of thought. And you can't say we're for property rights because that doesn't distinguish us either. Why not? Because property rights are inherent in every human society and every political system that's ever existed. Communists believe in property rights. Socialists believe in property rights. Fascists believe in property rights. Environmentalists believe in property rights. Welfare liberals believe in property rights. We believe in property rights. What's the difference? How they're assigned, that's the difference. So we look at the world and we see scarce resources that need to be controlled by someone, by the legal system, so that they can be used peacefully, productively. And our rule is simple, it's the Lockean rule. The Lockean rule basically says, whoever can show the better claim to a resource gets it. And the better claim is defined as either the first person who transformed it, yes, with his labor, in a sense, or if you acquired it by contract from someone else. It's very simple. Contract plus first appropriation. Now, what's the reason for the first appropriation rule? Now, Locke spelled this out in his argument. If no one had the right to be the first one to use a resource, it could never be used. Someone has got to be the first one to use this unowned thing out there. And if he's got the right to, to use it, then he's got a right to keep it because otherwise the second guy can take it from him, which is which is not a property right system. That's a system of violent clashing. 
So it's almost like the Misesian monetary regression theorem, right? When you trace back the origin of the value of, of gold-type money to its, to, its, to its pure commodity, non-monetary use. It's like that. You can see who's got a, a resource now, trace the title back to the first act of appropriation. This is what we say. Now, you could add one more rule. You could say that there's, if someone commits an act of aggression, some kind of tort, you harm someone else, you violate their rights. Because you perform that action, you have committed, you, you, you've uh, uh, incurred an obligation to compensate them. Right? So they might get a claim to your property because of that. So we could, we could modify the rules. The person who owns a resource is either the person who acquired it by contract from an owner, or who first appropriated it, or who acquired it because of some act of crime by the original owner. Okay? Other than that, there's no other ways to own property. Now, what did Locke say? Locke, what Locke said, he basically said this, but he had some extra stuff in his argument. Locke said, God created the universe. God owns the universe. God created Adam and Eve. He owned them. But God, in his benevolence, he's apparently a libertarian, granted dominion of all the unowned resources that he created to man. So within the human sphere, whether there's a god or not, whether you, you know, care that gods are slave owner or how you look at that, the point is that there's a system set up where the rule is that each man is a self-owner. That's what Locke called it. And remember, the danger of saying self-owner, better to say he's a body owner because that's the resource in dispute, right? I care if someone stabs my body, not if they stab myself, okay? Um, so every person is a self-owner. And then here's what Locke said, and here's the problem, I think, uh, with Locke's argument. Locke said, if you own yourself, then you own the labor you perform with your body or yourself. First off, I'm thinking right now it's a critical libertarian legal theory, uh, you know, legal theorist who wonders what words mean. Like, I'm kind of nagging, a nagging feeling is, what does that really mean to own your labor? But I'll go with that. And then Locke says, so you own this labor. Now, I'm thinking like a substance you know, emanating from myself. And so if it mixes with something unowned, well, I own the labor, so the only way I can keep ownership of that labor is to own the thing it's mixed with. Otherwise, you're taking my labor away from me. Right? So this is his argument for why we can appropriate unowned resources. Now, David Hume, writing later, that Locke was in the 1600s, Hume was a little bit later, um, pointed out, and I agree with Hume, Hume pointed out that this argument of Locke's is overly figurative or metaphorical. We don't really own our labor. We own our bodies. If you own your body, that means you have the right to perform whatever actions you want with it. And you can use those to sell uh, your services to someone. But think about it. If, I, if I, someone pays me to sing a song, they give me a dollar after I sing a song for them. The song pleased them. But do they own the song now? Do they, are they in possession of a song? No, they're in possession of a memory. Can I say that I gave them a memory? I suppose, but I didn't really own a memory that I transferred to them. This is all completely imprecise metaphorical stuff. And you don't need it. It's unnecessary. As Hume pointed out, Locke's argument works if you simplify it and you take out this stuff. Locke's argument works because, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, the libertarian reason. When you have an object that is disputed or contested, a scarce resource, then there really can be no other answer than that the person has a better claim to it that was the first one to appropriate it. Because if you don't give him that right, then, as I said, no one could ever appropriate anything in the first place. Or they would appropriate it with violence and people squabbling over it, which, again, defeats the purpose of having a legal system that permits resources to be used in a conflict-free way. Okay? So this is the problem. Now, you might say, well, he could have worded it better. But what's the problem with this? 
The problem is this entire mentality, this entire approach has led to a deep, vast confusion that has contaminated and infected political theory ever since his day. Arguably, it also at least partially contributed to the rise of a, a related doctrine called the labor theory of value, which is more of an economic idea, which is what contaminated Ricardo's and Adam Smith's and then Marx's thought. Right? The labor theory of value has this mystical idea that you know, the value of a product is based upon the labor that went into it. Now, there's several mistakes here. Number one, value is subjective. Right? There's no value in things. So all right away, he's thinking in intrinsic value terms. Makes no sense whatsoever, as Menger and the Austrians have shown. Right? Uh, and furthermore, you don't own labor. Labor is not a substance. And of course, the idea that you have two laborers who mix their labor with two objects, one's high quality, one's low quality. If this guy put 100 hours into it and this guy did it in 10, they're not going to have the same value. So then you have to reverse engineer your theory and say, well, now we have to have a multiplier coefficient on this guy's labor. So then you just kind of have a contorted theory. Anyway, that's the labor theory of value, which resulted in communism and hundreds of millions of deaths. So you know, if Locke's to blame for that, I guess we could say he's a little bit negligent. But I won't blame Locke for that, because you, know, you can trace these ideas back to, uh, to uh, Muslim thinkers back in the 1200s, I mean, a long time ago. Uh, but there's some evidence that, that this idea of labor as this thing people can own, this metaphorical approach, did lead to the Marxian labor theory of value. But the problem with Locke is the labor theory of property. Again, the idea that you own things that you mix your labor with. This is obviously not true. For example, if I'm an employee of a company, which Marx would abolish, I guess, right? And I'm paid to mix my labor to build a chair out of the employer's wood and nails. Well, I mix my labor with it. Why don't I own it? Well, because there's a contract, and I never owned it in the first place. Okay? So the problem with the labor theory of property is it has led to this idea, libertarians will say this all the time, sort of casual thinking, not very precise. They'll say there are three sources of property ownership. Number one, if you find something, original appropriation or homesteading, right? Locke's idea, the libertarian idea. Number two, by contract, by contractual acquisition. They're right about that. If you want to mention a third, it should be you know, some kind of aggression, which I mentioned can, can trigger a property title transfer, but that's a way of transferring title that exists already. So let's say finding something or by contract from a previous owner. And then they'll say the third way you can own something is by creation. See, what they're doing is they're going back to this labor idea. They're thinking, they're mixing things together. They're thinking humans are productive. We labor. Our labor, our intellect, our intellectual creativity helps create things of value. And just as I labor in a field and make a valuable form out of it, I must own that because I labored on it, which means I own anything that I create with my labor. You see how they go from one argument to the next? They never stop and ask the question, well, what's an ownable thing in the first place? You know? And then sometimes they'll argue by possessives, the most maddening thing. Like, well, if, if I don't own my, my labor, who does? Well, I like the word, the, the word my means I have to own it. I mean, I have a wife, my wife, my girlfriend, you know, my job, my customers. Do I own those because there's a possessive? No, sloppy thinking. So another dangerous word that I wanted to get to is the word property. We have this tendency to refer to things that we own as property, like, you know, this, uh, this iPad is my property. Now, I think it would be better to say this scarce resource, I have a property right in this scarce resource, or I own this scarce resource. Because when you start saying that's my property, look, think about why the word property was used in the first place. 
Locke said, you have a propriety in your things. What he's talking about is that when a human being acts in the world, right? We don't just use our bodies. We have standing room. We have other scarce resources that we employ to affect change, as I mentioned. All these things are sort of within the orbit of your control. They're a property of yourself in the sense that they're a feature of yourself. They're a characteristic of yourself. They're a way of describing part of your nature or your identity. Okay? So what they're talking about is what's proper to man, what's proper for a man to be able to rightfully control. So that's why the word property and property rights is used now it's like a type of metonymy, if you know what that is, to refer to the thing itself. But if we think clearly, we never arrive at the question most intellectual property advocates do, for example, which is, well, the question is, what is property? No, that's not the question. The question is, who owns this resource? Always. Because nothing else can be fought over. Because resources are necessarily things that can be fought over or contested. So the question in all of political philosophy is always, always, if you can point to a given resource, something that more than one person desires to use and there's potentially conflict over, who should rightfully be able to control it or own it or have a property right in? But don't call it property unless you're really careful about it. If you call it property, then you're going to end up with intellectual property and things like this. Okay? So um, the, the problem with the argument is that, it, uh, that there are three sources of ownership or property is that it, uh, uh, it conflates the source of wealth with the source of property rights. So it is completely true that if I own some raw materials, let's say some paper and, uh, uh, or let's say some, some, some wood and some, some metal, and I fashion these things into a chair, I have made an object that is more valuable. More valuable to who? To me or maybe to a potential customer. Remember, there's no value in the chair. Value is not intrinsic. It's not objective. Value is the, a sub subjective relationship between valuing acting human beings. So anyway, I transform resources into a more valuable shape. Or we could say, in economic terms, I have created wealth. Why have I created wealth? Because I've made something more valuable to me or someone else. In fact, if two people just trade their objects, two people trade an apple for an orange, they have created wealth by that transaction, right? It's not as classical economists say a horizontal trade where the values are equal. In fact, the guy who buys the apple with his orange values the apple more than the orange and vice versa. That's why they engage in the trade. So each one is better off after the trade. So wealth is created just by pure trade. Wealth is also created by humans laboring on their property. Wealth can also be destroyed. If you make a mistake and you ruin your property in an attempt to make a machine or something, then you can lose wealth. But the property rights don't change. Right? In fact, for me to make a chair presupposes that I owned the raw materials. I already own these raw materials. How did I get them? One of the first two ways. I either bought them by contract from a previous owner or I homesteaded them from the state of nature. That's it. So this ownership starts already before the act of creation or the act of production. The act of production is an act of laboring, using your labor, sure, on materials that you already own. Or it could be on someone else's materials, if you're an employee working on someone else's materials, and then you don't own it. So the key is always who owns the raw materials that go into productive labor. So creation, labor, is a source of wealth, but it's not a source of property rights. And if you realize that, you'll never fall into the trap of wondering, well, who owns that labor? Who owns that poem? Well, naturally, a poem doesn't spring out of nowhere. If you believe a poem is an ownable thing, or a movie, or a song, or a pattern of information, or a discovery, or a fact, or a database, well, 
I agree with you know, Tibor McCann. The best candidate for owning that is the guy who created it. But this presupposes that these things are ownable. Not everything is ownable. My memories are not ownable. My love is not ownable. My past is not ownable. The Earth's rotation is not ownable. These are characteristics, ways of describing the universe. You could say, as a practical matter, that I own my actions or I own my memory because I can control them. But that's, if you say it like that, you make the mistake of double counting, right? Because you're saying, well, I own my body and I own my actions. Well, no. You, you have the ability to control what actions you perform because you own your body. It's a consequence. It's derivative. It's not a separate, independent thing. So if we can clear up our thinking in this way, how are we doing on time, by the way? If we, clear, if we clear up these confusions, then a lot of confusions in thinking arise. So, as I said, property, limited government, state. Um, let me talk a little bit about one thing I touched on, which is an objection I, I hear a lot. This is about contracts. Now, I hear this all the time about this labor argument I give. They say, well, if you don't own your labor, how can you sell it? Right? I hear this all the time. Now, this is because people don't usually have a sophisticated or deep understanding of contract law in general, much less what I think is the libertarian view, which is the Rothbardian Evers view, which he calls the title transfer theory of contract. I don't want to get too much into legal theory, but let me just tell you uh, what I think is a simple way to look at, the, the right way to look at contract. First of all, um, in today's legal system, the way contracts are viewed as binding obligations, and that's how most libertarians look at it. If I make a, a promise to you in a certain formality, with a certain formality, in a certain way, then the law, even a private law in an anarchist society, should enforce that promise. Your promises should be binding. Okay? However, even in today's legal system, which, which characterizes the, the, the contractual realm that way, it doesn't operate that way. So, for example, if I promise to sing a song for you at your son's birthday party, um, and I decide not to show up, then you can't go get the cops to drag me there and make me sing for several reasons. Number one, it, would, it wouldn't be a very good song, right? I'm being compelled. Uh, and that's a practical consideration the courts use. Courts generally don't enforce what's called specific performance, which means they don't actually treat contracts as binding promises. What they do is they make me pay $1,000 damages to the guy you know, in a contract lawsuit, which means really what the contract is is just a transfer of title to property. It's as if I had said, uh, I'm predicting that I will sing at your son's birthday party tomorrow. I'm just making a prediction because I, I know myself pretty well, and I don't think I'll change very much between now and then. I can't buy myself because I might change my mind. But I tell you what, to give myself and my future self an inducement to sing, I will hereby transfer to you $1,000 in damage payments conditioned upon my not singing. Okay, that's fine. So that's what the contract is. It's really a transfer of title to property. And that's what Rothbard said. Rothbard said contracts are not, should not be viewed as binding obligations or promises. They should only be viewed as transfers of title to owned resources. I just said property. See, I made the mistake too. Um, and if you think about it, this is perfectly consistent with and an outcome of the two sources of property rights, the Lockean idea that I mentioned earlier, which is the idea that you own things because of first appropriation or by contract. So contract here means the owner of a resource has the ability to give up his ownership of it in favor of someone else, to transfer it to them. That's what contracts are. That's how they need to be viewed. So how do we reconcile this with the idea that you can sell your labor, like an employment contract or a service contract? 
the, the problem here is the person making the objection to my argument, the person arguing for IP in effect, the person trying to argue that labor is an ownable thing because you can have a contract regarding it. What they're doing is they're thinking in terms of the standard simple contract like the apple versus the orange, right? A typical contract would be two people exchanging titles, apple for orange, okay? It's an exchange. It's a contract. But remember, the definition of contract I mentioned doesn't talk about exchange. It just talks about transfer. So if I give my niece a $1,000 gift to go to college, that's a, that's a contract. It's a transfer of title. It's not an exchange. Not really. I mean, you could say I get pleasure out of it. Right? But it's definitely not a bilateral exchange. It's a one-way exchange. And this is how we have to think of employment contracts or service contracts. The sale of labor is another dangerous, confusing metaphor. The sale of labor is not really a metaphor. It's not really, it's, it's not really what happens. It's not literally true. What's happening here is people are analogizing this labor contract to a regular exchange. And they're thinking, well, if there's something being sold, there must be an exchange of title. And what's being sold? Title to the labor. No. It's like the example I gave earlier about the singing. What's being done is the buyer of my services, you could say, knows that I own my body. He knows I have the power to decide not to sing or to sing, or to paint his fence or not to paint his fence. He knows he's got to motivate me to do what he wants me to do. Just because this guy wants something and is willing to pay for it doesn't mean that thing is an ownable good. He might want it to rain tomorrow. He might want there to be national, you know, peace in the world tomorrow. These are, not, these are the ends of action, but they're not ownable things. Scarce means are what we use to accomplish ends. They are ownable things. The ends of action are often intangible. I mean, I might pursue a girl and buy her roses because I want her to go out with me. I want her to marry me and be my wife. But that end is getting a wife. It's got nothing to do with an ownable thing. We have to give up the idea that just because you pursue something and you pay money for it means that the thing you paid for is an ownable thing. There's the same thing with a service contract. I want this guy to sing a song. So I know that he, he, he's going to refuse to sing it unless I compensate him. So I make a deal with him. I say, if you sing, I will transfer $1,000 to you. In other words, I hereby transfer $1,000 to you conditioned upon your singing this song. If he sings it, he triggers a condition, the money transfers. Did he buy the song? No. Did he buy the singing? I guess, in a metaphorical sense, as long as you keep in mind that no title was transferred back. It was an outcome that I wanted. Okay? So, so the argument goes, well, you have to own something to sell it. So I just think I showed why that's correct, incorrect. So the fact that there's labor contracts doesn't show that labor is ownable. Okay? Now, the opposite would be what Walter Block has argued with me before. He says, well, if you own something, you have to be able to sell it which goes towards voluntary slavery, right? So if you, he says, Stefan, if you own your body, then surely you can sell it in, in, in a slavery contract. It should be enforceable. So his argument is that if you own something, you have to sell it. Now, what's the assumption here? The assumption is that ownership implies the right to sell, but it doesn't. Ownership means the exclusive right to control something, right? You have to have something else to, be, to, to make something sellable. And in my view, this is a little bit of a tangent, but my view is, there are two ways of acquiring two types of property. One is your body. We own our bodies not because we homestead the bodies. We don't acquire our bodies. We can't exist without our bodies. Okay? We're, that's part of our identity or our essence, our existence. We have a, there's another reason we own our bodies, and that's because we have a close connection to our bodies. We have a unique, direct control over those resources. Okay? So it's not homesteading. 
Locke alludes to this a little bit with the idea that God gives everyone the propriety to himself. He doesn't talk about homesteading there, really. Okay? And for, for things that were previously unowned out in the world, we own those because we have first appropriation or, or some contract after that. Okay? So for, the, for all these things, the, the first idea is that ownership means you have the exclusive right to control it. That nothing in that implies the right to sell. Not immediately, not directly. But then we recognize, well, this thing was unowned before. I'm the one who acquired it. I have the right to abandon this thing, right? I can unown it, so to speak. I can return it to the state of nature. And because of that power, which is an implication of the nature of these scarce resources and an implication of how we come to own these things, that gives you the practical ability to abandon it in favor of someone else. You know, I can take this apple, and instead of throwing it into the woods, I can hand it to you. Instead of loaning it to you, I could say, I now release my claims. Now I've given up my ownership. Now you're holding this unowned thing. You instantly be homesteaded. This is why things that have been homesteaded can be sold. It's not because you own them. It's because of the way they were acquired. Things that can be acquired can be deacquired. But we don't acquire our bodies, and our bodies were never unowned. From the moment you were a legal person or a philosophical person, you were identified and tightly bound up with a body. I'm not going to get into the metaphysical or religious idea of whether you have a soul and whether you are just your body or whether there's so I don't care. It makes no difference. If you're just a body, then your body owns your body. Fine. You know, don't give me nonsense about, well, that makes no sense because what I hear is you don't think I'm a self-owner. That means you think you're my owner or someone else is, so I'm going to keep an eye on you. Okay. Um, how much time do I have for Q&A? Okay. Um, let me mention one thing for two more minutes. There are some libertarians like Adam Mossoff, Richard Epstein, they're trying to rehabilitate Locke. They're trying to show that Locke did believe that intellectual property was a natural right, which he didn't. It's wrong. Um, Locke did believe in intellectual property, but just for uh, prudential reasons, like the same reason the founders did. Uh, Locke, in fact, did not believe that his homesteading theory implied um, that intellectual property is a type of right, which, which means I think he realized that he was using an overly metaphorical description. So I think he would have taken my side on this. Uh, and number two, so what? I don't care what Locke believed. If Locke believed in intellectual property, he was dead wrong, just like he was wrong about slavery. Um, so I'll stop here. Thank you very much. Sure. Is this a world where uh, drug companies, companies invest millions and millions of dollars in research and development uh, for life-saving drugs? Okay, so if we have to specify, uh, I mean, if we, if we live in a, in a communist dictatorship with no private property rights, but there's no intellectual property law, then no, I don't think drug companies would, be, um, would exist at all. So the question has to be, imagine some kind of world where intellectual property rights somehow disappear and we have some kind of free market still. And I'm imagining that you know, the reason we don't have IP laws, people realize what property, pri private property rights are, and so we have a more a stateless society in the first place, a freer market. We're going to have much more wealth and riches. And so, yes, I think, of course, um, if, if you imagine taking the tax burden and the regulatory burden and the FDA process and the tariffs and all the government regula regulations on drug companies, it would, it would remove immense burdens from them. They would have tons more customers, tons more money to invest. 
Um, and as an empirical matter, if you look at, uh, I mean, my argument is more principled and moral. Um, so just like Ayn Rand said about antitrust law, um, we think that it's unlikely businessmen would be able to collude or cartelize successfully on the free market. But even if they did, they have the right to do it. Right? There's freedom of contract. I would say the same thing about IP. Even if we have less overall innovation, you know, I'm for property rights in principle. I don't think anyone else should have a property right um, in my resources to tell me what I can't do with them, unless I'm committing some kind of tort or I've agreed by contract with them. Uh, but as an empirical matter, if you look at chapter nine of Boldrin and Levine's book, Against Intellectual Monopoly, which is a more utilitarian, empirical look at the IP thing, they show that there's a whole host of myths about the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, there's just a myth uh, that the patent system is really a big contributor to their profit margins. And in fact, if you took away the FDA process, the, the, the quote need, unquote, for patents would, would reduce. Um, the, the patent, uh, the drug approval process takes so long because of the FDA, and they have to disclose it to the public. So in a free market, you could keep things secret for a while. You'd have a first mover advantage. But in today's society, these drug companies have to you know, pull down their knickers and show the world everything they got so that by the time 15 years later this drug is approved, now everyone's ready to compete with them on day one. So they say, oh, I need a patent to stop them from competing. So the government screws me, and I want the government to screw my competitors now to level the playing field. I'd prefer to free up on both sides. And I think we would have a lot more creatistic, uh, creative artistic achievement. Um, you know, people could make documentaries without being worried about being sued for having a statue of some building in the background. Um, you wouldn't have uh, large companies bullying small companies and individuals with trademark suits, defamation suits, commercial liable, patent suits. Um, I mean, there are people dying right now. There's been tens of millions of people have died in Africa because they can't get AIDS drugs because the, the drug companies here insist on keeping the patent, patent cause monopoly prices up. There are people in, a, in a New England with Fabry's disease who cannot get this drug, which is patented, because there's a limited supply and no one can compete with them and make additional supplies and what they have is being sold to Europeans for some arcane reason. There are people dying right now because of patents. Patents cause censorship. Patents cause uh, not just copyright, trademark and patents cause censorship as well. Uh, copyright is causing people to go to federal prison. Um, I've seen one study that we, we are all, the average internet user is potentially guilty of $4.5 billion worth of copyright infringement liability every year just for emailing people things and copying a few things for a report. It's insane. And uh, as you mentioned at lunch, you know, we all probably commit four or five felonies a day. We can't help it. So I think uh, an IP-free world would be more innovative, freer, richer, um, more competitive. I mean, look, the advocates of IP, even free market ones, say we have to have patent and copyright to slow down the diffusion of ideas. We don't want an unbridled, we don't want unbridled competition. They say this, well, I want, bridled competi I want unbridled competition because I don't want anyone bridling it, right? So that's my opinion. Yeah. Uh, if not oh. Sorry, you want to, let's take him first, he's got the, okay. I'm just wondering if our idea of property itself maybe needs to be clarified, because there's two parts of it. Uh, there's an empirical component of property, is, is who is actually exercising exclusive control, and then there's a normative component of who should exercise control. And I wonder if those two have to be combined into one concept of property or if you can split them. Well, the, the institution of property is inherently normative, 
okay? What you're talking about more legally should be classified as possession. And even that has a normative component. There's legal possession in the law. And they, of course, blend together. They affect each other. So, for example, you know, you've heard the expression, possession is nine-tenths of the law. There's a reason for that, right? Because you have to have a presumption about who owns something. But the question is always, who has the legal right to control something? And when two or more claimants come into some kind of court, even a private court, they're, they're reasonable people, they both want this thing, but they want to solve it, they want to settle the dispute in a reasonable way, then the question has to be who has the right to control it or who, who should get it. Now, the guy that is currently in possession of it may be presumed to be the owner unless the other guy can show that he shouldn't be, right? So the burden of proof might be on the claimant. Like, possession might be what's used to determine who the claimant is. But I do think we should distinguish them. But if you do what I said earlier and you keep property as a right idea, and we talk about ownership or property rights in scarce resources, then the question is always who ought to have the right to control that scarce resource. Now, for pure human action, as I mentioned, human action means using your ideas as to decide and choose what scarce means to actually employ. That's a pure possessive or, or non-normative concept. Right? But for the humans that are civilized and that want to live in a civilized society where we're not fighting with each other with violence, then we seek for normative rules. We seek to say, well, who should have that thing, not just who is using it. If uh, law goes wrong on labor, how do we appropriate, originally appropriate resources, or how do I know what I need to do to appropriate resources? Right. So uh, I didn't mention this, but an another fallacious sort of concept that leads to confusion is the, the, the very idea of private property. I mean, in a way, property is public. It's not private, right? Because the very function of property is property rights is that we recognize there are scarce resources and we want these resources to be used by someone productively. And because we're moral normative people and we're trying to come up with an, come up with an, with an agreement with each other as to the fair way of doing it, there's an ethical concept here. So we're searching for some kind of property assignment rule, right? Who, who's the best one to get? We think someone should have it, otherwise we're gonna have fighting over it and they're not gonna be used productively. So the very idea of property rights is to set up boundaries or borders that are publicly visible. Right? If you don't have some kind of public border, publicly visible or Kantians would say intersubjectively ascertainable, it just means an objective border, something everyone can see. If you, uh, tall fences make good neighbors, right? The, the Robert Frost thing, right? I think it's Robert Frost. Um, so property inherently has to have some visible manifestation, not only of its borders, but of a tie between the property, the, the resource, and the owner. So other people can know where the borders are so they can avoid infringing it or trespassing if they want to be cooperative, and they know who, who owns it, so they know who to get permission from. So for something to be a property right, the act of appropriation has to somehow set up these borders. So that's why mixing labor comes into it. Basically, you have to transform it or do something with it. You might put a fence around a field. You might uh, take a limb from a tree and carve it into a staff or a club. And when you do these things, people can recognize them as artifacts. Some human has done something, and they've done it in a way to set up a border that signifies they are claiming a proprietary interest in it. Now, that's part of language, right? In other words, we can't have society without language. Language means we have the ability to communicate with each other somehow. And communication requires default or presumed rules. So it's not always express or explicit. So if a custom arises in a given area that having a house in a neighborhood with normal neighbors means that you know, the homeowner is kind of okay with little neighborhood children going onto their lawn to retrieve a lost baseball, right? Which means you don't put landmines on your lawn to kill those kids. It would be murder if you did that. 
not because you don't have the right to keep people from trespassing, but because by the language of the community, you have basically communicated to everyone, you know, I'm like the regular guy. People can walk up to my door and knock on it for a cup of sugar. If I want to change the default presumption, I've got to put a post-it sign up and say, trespassers will be shot or something, you know, so you change the default presumption. If you lived in a neighborhood where the presumption was the opposite, then you might have to put up a sign saying, you know, you're welcome to come knock on my door for trick-or-treat. I won't shoot you. And then, it's, then you're inviting someone. But the question is always, um, uh, so, so labor, labor is one way that you can transform and therefore connect yourself to the property and send up a sign to the community using communicative norms. You're, you're telling people, this is mine. It's no longer unowned. I've transformed it with my labor. So the reason you have a better claim to it is not because you own your labor, but just because you, were, you connect yourself to it. You're the first one to own it, to, to, to use it. And again, if the first person to use property doesn't have the right to do it, then we don't have a property right system at all. We all we're back to the war of all against all and violence. Okay, we've got one last question. If you didn't get your question in, uh, we are going to have a panel discussion of another shot at uh, Mr. Consolidation. I really like something that I just talked about here. Uh, to better understand that, I'd like to put up a scenario for you. Let's say that uh, during the discussion right now, I have videotaped our I recorded it, and uh, then I burned it on some DVDs, and I put it on the market, and I sold them, and I made a million dollars off it. Yes. Who owns that? No one. It's not an ownable thing. Who owns the money? Yes. You own the money. People, gave it to you. People that own the money gave it to you voluntarily in exchange for you doing something that they liked. But do you have any claim on that? Though? No. Absolutely not. Okay. Un unless, unless you agree to a contract by entering this private arena which has certain rules of the road, so to speak, or you and I, I said, look, I'm not going to speak unless I get everyone that wants to come hear me talk, sign an agreement saying if they profit in any way, if they learn from what I said, okay? <laughs> if they have the audacity to walk out of here knowing anything more than they knew before, if it affects their actions at all, then they have to pay me a million dollars. Okay, I think I'd have an empty stadium. You know, so unless there's a contract or an implicit contract because of the rules of the private venue, then no, absolutely not. You have the right to do whatever you want. As long as it, because you didn't trespass against my body and, and I didn't have a contract with you. So basically, libertarianism says you can do whatever you want. We, we don't need to seek permission for our actions. This is not supposed to be Soviet Russia. This is what the IP mentality does. It makes people wonder, what permission do I have to do that? No, the question is you can do anything you want in your life as long as you don't invade my property borders. That's it. And you didn't do that, did you? You gave people information. And if I don't want people to see my face, I should stay in my house all day. You know? Okay. Thank you, Mr. Casella. Uh, I know that I'll tell you, but here's the thing. Um, to the extent you see progress at all, um, it's due to markets. Bureaucracies are inher inherently reactionary. They only kind of, uh, the rules are all based on the past. I mean, do you, do you understand what the state is, really? Because um, I ask that question because people are oftentimes very confused about this. I mean, the state is not the newest guy who's elected president, right? So, like, he may or may not have anything to do with the state. I mean, do a mental experiment in your own mind. If you shipped off Congress, the entire, you know, 
presidential staff as the president and the Supreme Court on like a slow boat and put them, you know, going to China or whatever. Would the state stop functioning? Like, would it shut down? And I think we all understand the answer is no. I mean, the state is not really the people we elect. That's just the veneer. The real state is the kind of permanent bureaucracy. It's the, the thing you know, that we heard about earlier called the nation state, which is a sp specific thing. It's a kind of, they imagine it to be an immortal being that continues to live despite its current inhabitants. It just kind of perpetuates itself. So the state is really not just the people who are there, much less the people who elect. It's the accumulation of crap that's been going on for like 100 years. It's this big, crufty computer. You know the term cruft? It's a code word. I mean, it's like when you're writing software, if it gets too crufty, I mean, it's like got too much old code and too many hacks in it, then it stops working, right? So that's what cruft is. The state is like this gigantic, crufty machine. And, and it's continued to enforce laws made, you know, a hundred years ago and everything from then up to now. And all these laws are regulating essentially the past. The other thing is that, that the state is in control very much of the physical world, and only the physical world. The future that began to be invented in 1995 is about not the physical world, it's about the digital world. And the digital world, the world of the realm of ideas and information, is a completely different thing. It operates according to different metaphysical principles. Everything that flows in and out of it is malleable. It's immortal. It's infinitely copyable. None of which can be said about the physical world that the state controls. So we have a huge advantage. So every time you see some sign of progress, Think of it as, this reminds me of a scene from Wonderful Life, where it says every time there's a bell ringing or something, that means an angel is something, right? So um, every time you see some element of progress, count that as a victory. And I, I take this to absurd extents. Like when McDonald's came out with the new uh, 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 Fish McBites, I thought, oh, this thing is good. Progress. I mean, so, <laughs> I mean, so, because all progress in this world is driven by you and me and other people's like us. All progress comes from human action and choice. Everything bad in the world, you can pretty much trace to the state in some way or another. So every time you see some evidence of progress, that's evidence that we're winning already. And we'll continue to, for the reasons I just laid out. Uh, Mr. Kinsella, uh, you gave a beautiful analogy on how, uh, how somebody came to your birthday first, your daughter's birthday party to sing, and if they didn't, there would be damage reparations uh, that they would have to pay, and if they did, that you would have to pay them. Uh, how does that analogy uh, apply to, um, to a, a steady job? So I go in and I work at McDonald's or Starbucks, and, uh, I, and if I don't come in one day, they have no way of, of, of penalizing me monetarily uh, but they lose profit from that day from a lack of, of Okay, so right. Okay, so um, in the in the birthday party scenario, I'm assuming that it's important to the parent that the singer show up. So to guarantee they're going to show up, you want to more than incentivize them, you want to give them a penalty as well. All right? So you negotiate that ahead of time. So you say, I'm going to pay you 1,000 if you show up, and if you don't show up, you've got to pay me 
I don't know, 2,000 or 500 or something. Now, if you do that, then you're, you're imposing a cost on the singer, so you might have to pay them more money than otherwise, right? So they're getting 1,000 if they show up, but they're taking the risk that if they get sick or they, you know, their mom gets sick and they can't show up, that they're going to have to pay you a penalty. So it's a price. If you're willing to pay for it, that's fine. In the employment situation, usually the default desire of both parties is what's called at will, right? So you want to be, uh, the employer wants to be free to fire you at any time, right? I mean, if he suspects you of dishonesty or something. He wants to you out of there right away. He doesn't have to pay you anything for that. And likewise, you want to be able to quit whenever you want to. Now, in some cases, you could negotiate something else, and employers do that sometimes. So for example, um, if, if an employer hires a, a high-valued employee and they move them, they pay a moving package and a sign-on bonus, which happens sometimes, sometimes at McDonald's up in North Dakota right now, okay? Um, the employer will say, we're going to pay you $15,000 sign-on bonus and $10,000 of moving expenses. And it's, it's really like a loan, which we retire after a year of employment. But if you leave after six months, you've got to pay us that back. And you sign on the dotted line. It's a contract. I've known people that the companies either pursue them or work out a settlement. So sometimes if it's important that you show up, the employer could negotiate something like that. So it's really just what the parties negotiate, but just the nature of the employment relationship usually is at, at will. Um, this is for uh, you as well, Stephen. So, um, I totally agree that IP is a joke, and I'm starting to warm up the idea that what you're talking about is labor is not a property, it's an action. And I was trying to relate that to my life working in a lot of menial jobs through school, and I was, just for an example, here I'm going to give a micro and then a macro question. So, um, like, <clears throat> working in ditch digging all day, your labor, okay, it's not your property. What about the time you spend there? Would you consider that as a property? And then in general, do you consider time as property? I don't think time is property. I don't think you, you don't own time. You can't transfer time literally to someone else. I mean, do you agree that time has value? I think in a sense time is scarce, right? We only have so much of it. Right. But it's not really something, it's, it, it marches on no matter what you do incessantly. It's really the, the chronological succession of events in your life. Action presupposes time because action aimed at something in the future. But I don't think it's a, a scarce resource in the sense it's something that can be owned or sold. At least I can't imagine how you can do that outside of a science fiction novel. Didn't you used to believe that time wasn't scarce? I mean, didn't I don't think it's a scarce resource, but it's, it's scarce in the sense that there's only a finite amount of it that we have. Yeah. So, okay. It's not scarce for the universe, but it's scarce for us, right? Right. Yeah. I, I thought oh, that's good. That systems. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that if we live forever, then time wouldn't be scarce? Okay. But we know, like, we're mortal, and that makes time scarce. Because we... It's a finite resource. Yeah. Okay. And the opportunity cost, everything we're doing is with our time is everything we're not doing with our time. Yeah. Okay. Except we don't know we're mortal, and even if you were immortal, you couldn't know that either. Okay. Thanks, David. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, thank you all for taking your time to be with us today, especially personally. It's a new uh, venture for me, and I've learned much today. Uh, coming from an education background, I've been But um, I um, have um, learned that libertarians and um, are hmm, more than disillusioned with the public school system. I 
the Spring Bucket School and the Target School and in university teaching, and I would tend to agree with you there on many fronts. So, um, and we've discussed some alternate educating uh, systems, unschooling, homeschooling, uh, but for the majority of the children that are now taught in public school, that may not be an option. Um, resources, time, uh, parent knowledge. So what is our solution for those children um, if there were no public schools? Do you mean like in, in a free society, the kids who couldn't get educated because their parents were too busy or, or something like that? Well, I mean, charity. I mean, I, I give away all of my educational resources, all my books for free. So, um, and there's the Khan Academy, there's lots of things, you know, public libraries that I'm sure would give internet access or whatever charities would help out and so on. But the other thing too is that, you know, we've, we've got this idea that childhood needs to be walled off from adulthood, like it's in this enclosure, and that means that you, you just learn stuff. And childhood wasn't like that for most of human history. For most of human history, children learned how to do stuff by being with adults and, and doing them. Yeah. So Dr. Philip Zombardo uh, has written out a, a book, which is I really recommend, called The Demise of Guys, about you know, problems that men are facing, uh, young men in particular are facing. He pointed out that throughout most of human history, you would have four adults around for every child. Four adults around, because you'd be in this extended community, aunts, grandparents, uncles. Kids would have models all over the place, and they'd be out there in the fields doing stuff with their parents, learning you know, how to plow the back 40 or whatever the heck people do to get food to my table. And that's, that's how they would learn. They'd be out there doing stuff. So childhood was not this enclosure. You put these kids in this biosphere, and you just give them books and pencils. Uh, kids would learn out in the world doing things, and you've got remarkable child prodigies coming out of this. And I, I, I meant to look this up, but there's uh, a medieval court astronomer was 11. I mean, if you look at the intellectual achievements of a lot of the, the great people, most of them didn't live very long. Galileo is kind of an exception. They did remarkable things very early because they were out there doing things. Yeah. And so, I, it, again, what has happened is the state has walled off childhood in this enclosure. And then we think, well, how would that enclosure work in a free society? But we don't know what childhood would look like in a free society. It certainly wouldn't look anything like it looks right now. Adolescence was completely invented. You know, basically it's just a way of, I personally think it was invented as a way of keeping young, able-bodied people out of the workforce to compete with middle-aged guys who didn't want to have the competition. Just keep them in high school, and that way they can't compete with you and uh, installing a toilet. You know, I, feel, I, I think it's, it's, it's a big mess right now, but childhood would be very different. I think it would be more practical, it would be more engaged, and it certainly would not be the opposite of what it was throughout history, which was, you know, one child to four adults. Now you have one adult with 25 children. I mean, this is all a Lord of the Flies mess. I mean, the children are socializing horizontally. Yeah, yeah. They're not learning vertically. They're not being imprinted or instructed vertically. They're learning with almost no social skills. They're learning from the lowest common denominator around them horizontally, which is why we're seeing such a breakdown, in, I think, in society. So, sorry, long answer, but it would be very different. So, who knows? But I certainly have enough faith that human beings would, would take care of the children who couldn't. Right? And it certainly would be better than what the recent statistics that came out about High school students in New York, 80% of them who graduate can't read. I mean, let's get it, let's say the free market can get that down to 75%. <laughs> Do you know what the literacy rate was before public schools? 98%, 97%. I mean, Moby Dick, you've ever tried to read that book? Right. Moby Dick. <laughs>
I mean, my God, this was the most popular. Thomas Paine, did you see those quotes? That language is like an angel weeping into your eyeball. I mean, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful stuff. And this, is, this was incredibly popular books before public school. We watched the, the literacy rate. If you, if you do the analysis of, of, of politicians' speeches, uh, they go from a you know, grade 10 level. So it started at a grade 12 level, even as late as the 50s, Eisenhower, grade 10. Now you have to speak at a grade 6 level. And slowly, like Obama does, right? Because the literacy rate is declining abysmally, catastrophically. I mean, we are a post-literate society, which is one of the reasons why this room is not full, uh, because this requires some cognitive skills, which you're just not going to get watching Wife's Ball. Anyway, so... Well, I, I actually have something to say about this. I, you know, I homeschool my three children, and, and I have, you know, I spent a lot of time um, making excuses, you know, well, they're in church groups, oh, we go here, we joined a homeschool group, and, because people look at you like, well, how do they, how do they learn to be around other people? And I have, I have stopped doing that because the truth is I don't want to take my undisciplined, unsocialized little beast and stick it in a school with 400 other similarly unsocialized, undisciplined little beasts. And then we wonder why we have adults who are so juvenile. You know, I work with people who whine right to the guy who writes their checks about the simplest tasks. And I think, like, where do these people come from? You know, and I think it has a lot to do with just throwing all these kids in there. My children learned, you know, from adults, from the adults around them. Mm. They can go and converse with, they could converse with any one of you here on an intellectual level. I mean, clearly they would not have, you know, the same understanding. But they could make sense. Jonathan can attest to that. I have smart children, you know, and they can speak to adults. And I think that that's important. And the other thing I wanted to say is that I really do believe that the public school system subsidizes lazy parenting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, we do look and we have, like, a whole generation of kids that, you know, what would we do if the schools closed down tomorrow? And, I mean, that's sad. You know, I think people would clean up the mess. If there were no public schooling, private schooling would probably be a lot cheaper. Um, but, you know, also maybe a generation hence, you wouldn't have women willing to spit out six kids because at age three they can stick them in preschool, you know, and they don't have to deal with them anymore. So I think that it does a lot to give us unwanted children as well. That was... We should also name two terrible things. One is compulsory education, which is a relatively new institution. I mean, you hardly ever hear libertarians talk about it, but it's an out outrageous institution. That's state forcing kids into school. And the second thing, which is, which is so cruel, was the imposition of child labor laws uh, in the New Deal, which, as Stefan said, was really just designed to, I mean, the problem was the unemployment rate was high. So FDR had this great idea, let's just make a bunch, make it illegal for a whole class of workers to, to work, and then we can reduce the unemployment rate. Right? I mean, you know, it, it's hard, I, you know, to me, childhood should just be like completely restructured. You know, like you should learn stuff, you know, until you're like 12. And then, you should go to work. And there's plenty of great things that a 12-year-old can do. And you work between the age of 12 and like 17 or something. You don't stop learning, but you also combine it with commercial experience, real valuable things you're doing. You know. and, then, and then at that age of 17 or 18, you decide, well, what kind of things do I want to do? I want to be a, you know, pursue a vocation in life. Do I want to go back to academia? In which case, then you can really sort of dig in and, and study for higher education. Whatever, you can start plotting your life. At least you can make a... A, an informed choice and you have a lot of different skills and you've hung around the real world which kids don't know anything about anymore and it's very interesting to me ever since we cut kids out of the workforce they still want to do cool stuff they just don't want to sit at a desk 
So what have we done in our public school systems? I mean, it's weird what's happened. Uh, now, when you get into junior high and high school, they, uh, the education element of it, like learning stuff in classrooms, really is a very increasingly small part of life experience for the kids. What they're actually doing is like tennis, basketball, uh, football, uh, chess club, uh, choir, band, on and on, all these kind of new systems that are large part funded by parental money and booster clubs and stuff like that, built on top of this, this, this lower structure, very thin structure of where they pretend to educate things. So it's like we're reinventing you know, a kind of uh, child labor, except it's not in the commercial world. You know, they're doing other things. We have, we've come up with the artificial systems to keep them busy for as long as possible. So I'd love to see libertarians actually start talking about the problem of child labor laws. I mean, as far as I know, I'm the only guy who ever talks about this. And whenever I start talking about it, people want to unplug the microphone because it, you know, it mortifies people in some way. I got my first job at nine. Yeah. I mean, I did, and, it's, and it's increasingly difficult to get jobs for kids. I mean, yeah. even when I was 13 or 14, I could go out and dig wells and things like that. Yeah. It's almost impossible. Now, I got a job at a bookstore when I was 11. I got free books. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, they changed the law recently to start to outlaw kids even working for their own families on their own farms. Yes, that is true. Yeah, it's only child actors who are allowed to work anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they make lots of money. Uh, like just, Justin Bieber. <laughs> let, let me add one point. Um, I, I agree with everyone here, and I don't have anything deep, but one thing I've observed, um, I've noticed since I have a kid in school that you know, there's these conference days and things where the kids don't go to school on a Friday, you know? And I've noticed that a lot of parents, they hate it, partly because I think there's so many dual working parent couples nowadays, because of the, partly because of taxes and regulations. I mean, there's almost no one can afford to have someone stay home anymore or with the same standard of living as they used to. So they use the schools as, as daycare. And they hate it. I mean, like if, if my school announced another day off for the kid, oh, we'll go find something to do, we'll have fun, whatever. <coughs> Day off, I don't care. Um, but some people, I've seen them get upset about this. Oh, no, not another conference yeah, day. Yeah, this is part of the pressure for year-round schooling, too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I remember talking to a lot of parents who, whenever <coughs> uh, kids would come home for summer, they'd complain, like, oh, shit, what am I going to do with these kids all day? Right. <laughs> you didn't have to have them. They're <laughs> <laughs> not sent to you by God. I mean... It wasn't like the stalk got shot down over your house. Mayday, mayday, drop the kids. What are these things doing here? Sorry. It's not like they didn't have birth control options either. You can still have sex and you don't get pregnant. Can you show us a little bit about it? You don't have to involve anyone else. You Anyway. Okay, so... I, I'm not trying to create a division here, but when I was talking to Walter Block... Uh, oh, I think he created division on his own, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I mentioned the non-aggression principle in relating, relating to children. Yeah. And his response, as I'm sure everyone else saw here, was that if, you're, if it's wrong to have sex with a five-year-old, then yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's okay to hate kids. No, okay. I, 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 yeah, I mean, the logic is exciting to say the least. But um, because what he's what he's arguing is that we have higher standards of behavior for children when it comes to sex, 
right? So what is consensual for an adult is not consensual for a child. I completely agree, of course. I and mean, children can't understand the ramifications of sexual activity, so you can't have sex with children. I'm glad that's not controversial. Because <laughs> I I, it's a case I don't even ever want to argue because it's just anybody who's against that, I just want to not be in the same room as. But um, so, so to say, well, we have a higher standard of sexual um, licensure with children, right? So, so they have, we have higher standards of ethics with children, and then to translate that over to say, but when it comes to hitting, we can have far lower standards is not a rational argument at all, right? And I think, I mean, I don't know, you can speculate as to why he would make that argument, but it doesn't hold any water to say, well, children by the definition need more protection, so we should hit them more. And then the justification that if you try to hit someone off the bridge, then well, yeah, I mean, so that argument is, is if, if you see a blind, like you see a guy with headphones on wandering in front of a bus, you can tackle him to, to stop him, and I think few of us would say that that's immoral, and uh, therefore you can hit children. I mean, again, I, I find that to be somewhat, because as a parent, you're, you know, running into traffic and stuff, as a parent, you're responsible to, to not have your children in spaces where they can run into traffic. I mean, that's the whole point. Build a fence, for God's sakes. You're going to have to hit your children, right? They're reaching for something on the stove. Well, use the back burners. You know, there's lots of options to, to not hit your children. Uh, so, uh, and, and he said, uh, he did say, which I don't agree with, that you know, his child learns about X, Y, and Z when you hit them. No, that's not what hitting does. Hitting is aversion therapy. The child learns that it hurts to get hit. They don't learn anything else other than fear of the authority figure and that it's painful to get hit. So it's not educational. Um, and I mean, oh, I won't get into all the other stuff about you know the studies that it lowers IQ, harms social abilities, uh, harms concentration, uh, and so on. So um, I agree with him that we have to have higher standards with regards to sexuality for children than we do for adults. I disagree with him extremely strongly that that somehow translates into having infinitely lower standards for the physical hitting of people with regards to children. I think that it would be exactly the same, which is you would need you know, to hit a child is worse than to hit an adult. An adult has self-defense, an adult has legal recourse, an adult is in your life voluntarily. Children are not in your life voluntarily. I mean, I think about this every day with my own daughter. She's not here by choice. She didn't choose me as her father, right? So it's, I've used this analogy before that if my wife was assigned to me by some religious or secular authority and I really wanted her to love me, I would have to behave to her even better than if she chose me because I'd have to overcome the involuntary nature of her relationship to me by being assigned to me in some way. And my daughter didn't choose me, so I have to treat her the very best to overcome the involuntary aspect of our relationship so that I try to act as a father that, in such a way that if she could choose any father any day, she would choose me. Like if she could choose to switch anyone, you know, she would choose me because she doesn't have that choice, but I need to act as if she does, otherwise I don't have any right to her love. So. Uh, I think that we have to have much higher standards with regards to children than any other because it is an innately involuntary relationship. We have to overcome that. You can't change that, it's the biology, but uh, you can work to overcome it. And I think that by lowering the standards, you're doing the opposite of that. You know, I'm going to say something about Stefan's point about this. I just want to say publicly that I think he's been a very brave man in pioneering this new application of libertarian ideas and really ethics to children. I, if you told me 10 years ago that I would have come around to the view that he now espouses, I wouldn't have believed it, but he's, he's gradually persuaded me, and I think he's right about it, and it's not as if he has made these points as preaching to an already convinced choir. I mean, you, <laughs> yep. you know, you really went out there on a limb. I pushed hard on this. And, and yeah. it's, it's, a, it's been a brave campaign, 
And I must say for myself, I've been very much persuaded by it. Um, it used to make me kind of uncomfortable when you talk about this stuff. Now I'm really glad, you know? So I think that we've, I think you've been personally responsible for some degree of human progress in our times. Yeah. Mm, let me. Um, I agree with Jeff. I just want to add that um, I've, ever since I've had a child, I've always been against spanking myself, but I sort of thought it was not aggression for convoluted arguments. But you convinced me, I don't know, nine months ago on the phone. So I agree with you. It's aggression. It's a bad idea. Um, and there's one argument that drives me nuts. It's this, I was spanked when I was a child, and I came out all right. I mean, what kind of argument is that? Because, you know, some people overcome robbery. I mean, I hear a similar argument with taxes, you know, from liberals or socialists. They'll say, well, I'm happy to pay my taxes. Or they'll say, no, you, uh, you're taxed half your income, but you're living a pretty good life. It's like, what kind of argument is that? It's the same, it's the same as the, you know, the making area. Anyway, I agree. Well, and okay, no, I agree, too. <laughs> all, all, all my first boys were spanked, but I have never had to spank my daughter, and I've never wanted to after watching. I really do, like, and I really like what you said about the involuntary nature of it. Yeah, that like really makes me think. And they know, can't leave. Right. I mean, right. so... Boy, it's a weird, isn't it? The parent-child relationship is potentially abusive because you have a kind of natural power. Yeah, right. Yep. Yes. It's a mini yeah. state. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. You're like, a, you're like a potentially a mini state. I mean, yeah. you know, I must tell you too something else. Thinking about your points has made me realize something about that's the state. I used to have this view that the state represented some kind of unique evil, and now I realize the state is just the most aggressive and entrenched embodiment and most imperialistic of a kind of universal evil. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That it, it's not like it's some unique beast that appears out of nowhere. It's that it's, it's the uh, aggregation of the beast that's within all of us and in the worst possible way, you know? So if you're going to stamp out evil of the state, you really can begin in many ways in stamping out that same evil in your household. Did I say that? No, that's that's yes. right. And yeah. if you know, if, if if governments have to have a constitution to limit their dangerous power, maybe parents yeah. need to have a constitution, a social contract with the child. And, that makes sense. And you breach it if you aggress the aggress against them, and are you. Uh, you know, it's really it's a new understanding for me. I mean, I did go through this change in my conception of what the state is and does, realizing that it just it's kind of this crappy thing that just grabs every bit of human evil in all of us and puts it in one institution and says we're in charge. You know. Uh, that's a different way of conceiving of the state, I think. And I think you've helped me to come to that realization. You know, it's a different way of looking at it. I'm not even sure that Rothbard looked at it that way, actually. He touched on it. I mean, he wrote Kids Lib, and yeah. so he touched on it, but um, uh, I don't think... I think that libertarians focus on where the state comes from is largely political. But I think there's a lot of good work out there from psychologists, and the psychohistory.com is a really good place for this, <clears throat> where they talk about how the hierarchies in society reflect very early childhood experiences. Because the state is so irrational. How could you possibly look at this institution and have it make any sense unless you'd had some prior experience of that relationship? There's a problem when some libertarians view, um, you know, liberty ends in the moment where you're no longer allowed to keep your kids. And I've gotten that kind of backlash from certain libertarians I've spoken to, which is hmm. really problematic. Hmm. 
Well, I think there is something to be said. I mean, there's got to be a nuance there where how involved are we going to ask the state to be in the raising of children, too? You know, who stops that? Um, I think that uh, Shane had made a point, at least last night when we were talking about um, if you see, um, you know, something wrongful, a violation of natural rights happening, even on someone else's property, that they, by violating the natural rights, have kind of, you know, lost their defense and, um, and that you can go on and rightfully stop that. Um, and I think, really, if you go back a long time ago, you know, before the state was so involved, um, people did that within communities. I know that my own grandmother raised three children who were not able to be raised by their own families. Um, you know, they were in a farming community, and, and people just took care of other people. You know, but that's been replaced by this incredibly intrusive apparatus. And, I mean, I know for my part, I don't want CPS or DIFUS okay. or whatever involved no. in my life well, in any way, well, shape, or form. I'm not even ad- actually advocating for children. No, no. I mean, the, the, the child family uh, welfare bureaucracies are mainly interested in perpetrating themselves, right? Right. So that's the main goal. That's why they, pick, they would typically pick on the cases that are you know, are, are going to make nice, high-profile media things or whatever, and foregoing the really abusive systems that are all around them. Uh, so the same thing that afflicts the state in every other area really uh, is a dynamic that works also in the child family area. If you're looking for research projects, and I'm not sure how many of you are interested in, in pursuing a kind of academic career in this sense, but there is a lot of work that needs to be done on, on libertarianism and, and child, ch- uh, child and family law. We have very few resources on this subject at all. I'm actually a former child protective services investigator. Great. And yeah. um, it was the most corrupting, worst thing that's ever happened in my entire life. Um, the only moral things that you could do as an investigator was to break the law. Because hitting children wasn't really considered abuse. But it was considered abuse if a five-year-old was allowed to ride his bike. I had reports where a five-year-old, I know, I had a report where a nine-year-old was riding their bike down the street, and I had to go ask this child, "Has he ever been sexually molested?" Yeah, what it's the abusive. Hell does it have to do with it? It's absolutely abusive. The whole system is like a form of child abuse in itself. Yeah, of course. It was, and, and the whole system where we could take people out of the houses, take them to foster homes, where every single, for every diagnosis the child got. The, can I just, uh, I, I won't get on the soapbox, but I just wanted to mention that um, the, the, the profit that comes out of child abuse uh, is tragically huge. In, in a free society, uh, there would be huge losses for child abuse because they're hard, kids like that are harder to teach and, and they, you know, the, the, to insure them against property damage or future criminality would be very expensive. But if you think about it, why do people feel that they need the state? They feel that they need the state because they're afraid of aggression from other people. And for the most part, we know very scientifically where aggression comes from. It comes from aggression against people as children. So if children were raised peacefully, there would be almost no criminality. And so we would say, well, protection from what? You know, it's like, uh, how, can I sell you insurance protection against vampires? Well, no. <laughs> Because, you know, they're not around that much, right? So if criminals became a sort of a species of unicorn, uh, we really would have much less desire for the state. Because a trauma in childhood produces two things in general. It produces uh, criminality and overcompliance. And, and these two things are essential. The criminals are used to scare us, and the resulting piece of overcompliance we heard towards the supposed protector. 
and this is not even to mention the fact that, can you imagine public school, how it could even function 25 to 1 ratios with a healthy, independent, intelligent, skeptical, questioning, confident children? The system would simply collapse. But those are sent to detention. Yeah, yeah, well, no, the whole school is in detention. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, the whole pharmaceutical industry and this horrible drugging of children, uh, which we've talked about in, in my show before, uh, simply it could, it couldn't exist. This is all wallpaper all over trauma, trauma in childhood. So. Um, I, I've sort of argued for many years, and I'm not the only one to do it, but the state is, in effect, of the family, and you can't solve the state without solving the family. I've got lots of ideas about that, but anyway, we get on with other questions if you want, but thanks for bringing that up. All right, uh, so this is oh, sorry. a little tangential to the child issue, uh, and can go out to any panel who feels comfortable answering this question. Uh, and it's contradictory, but I am in the Army, and I've become like the token libertarian guy in the unit, <laughs> and so uh, you know, I've engaged... First of all, get a haircut. But anywho, so a lot of these guys are deployed, something happened, but um, I always get a lot of crap because I'm not, you know, nationalist, I don't pledge any sort of allegiance, I just, you know, I do my job. Uh, but I feel like in the military, especially in the Army and Marines, uh, this nationalistic kind of prideful view uh, of this public service, if you will, uh, is a lot worse than civilians. And I just wanted to know, what is the best way to combat this, either from a military or civilian perspective? You know, Are you speaking about in the reserves or in the regular just period? It doesn't matter where you are, <coughs> uh, it, it, it definitely does its place. I would expect it would be more intense in the reserves, just because they don't have as much experience. You know, with tour, I mean, I've, the best libertarians I've ever known did two tours in Afghanistan. You know. Well, most of the reserve guys have deployed two weeks okay. at a time. Yeah. Is that how that works? Oh, do you want me to take it? Well, why don't you play one of these guys and I'll play not one of these guys? All right, so you got a mic? Uh, yeah, okay, so, so they would say what? Uh, in response to you. No, no. So they would give me a, a little nationalist thing that they would say. All right, if I said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so if we were talking about, say, um, going into Iraq. That, that, that was a whole mistake. And they say, well, you know, I've been out there once or twice, and I think that it was perfectly valid because we are promoting democracy, and we're just trying to help them stabilize themselves after that terrible regime, or say something about, you know, our oil interests, or whatever the case may be. And I would say... Well, no, no, let me do the other part. All right. <laughs> so I would say, well, you understand that some people don't agree with that, right? Sure. And would you accept their right to disagree with that? I mean, yes, yeah, you can disagree with whatever you want. <laughs> okay, so now, you, would you accept their right to not just disagree with you in theory, but in practice? Right, because there's not much point saying, well, you can disagree with me, <clears throat> but you can't change any of your behaviors, right? So would they allow, so let's say somebody's conscience or somebody's argument disagreed with the value of going into Iraq. Would they be free to act on their conscience? I mean, I cannot tell anyone. Yeah, you can't order people to write. They're, they're not in the army, right? So, so if I'm that person who disagrees with the, the war in Iraq, then clearly I should be free to withdraw my financial support uh, from that because I have to be able to disagree with you in a practical, material sense. And by that you mean taxes. <laughs> yeah. 
Right, so, but their view obviously is not the same. They do... Uh, no, 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 but, but, but we just did a logical <laughs> thing, right? We just did a logical thing where they said, I, I like this. Like, I remember having a conversation with a woman on my show. She was really for the surge. It's like, great, send them a check. <laughs> you know, if you're for it, fine. I mean, but, so if, if people don't like the imperialism, surely they have to be free to not be forced to support it because that goes against their conscience. And that you have to be free to act uh, uh, with regards to your conscience, otherwise you're just a slave. Right, so that would affect people like you and me, but we don't have the opportunity. So no, 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 no. I would ask this guy, does he defend that right? Would he, act, would he accept that right? I'm asking. Yeah, the, the freedom to disagree. Because this is what the soldiers always say. I fought for you to be free to disagree with me. It's like, great, then I can stop paying your salary. Thank you for the job. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, it's, it's worse than that. They don't even want you to complain because they'll say, I fought for your right to, to criticize us. And I'm like, well, then let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> let me honor your service. Go on. <laughs> Go on about your way. <laughs> Get my money worth. Okay, um, I have a, I'm taking government right now. Um, I'm a <laughs> uh, they handed me the mic on the question. I didn't quite understand what the question was. I understand the scenario. Uh, could you restate the question? Yes. It's the Hobbesian argument, right? Like, like you have a government, or you have nature, red, and tooth and claw. There's no, nothing in between. Yeah, what, what would your response be to that statement? It's either the government or the jungle. Um, the jungle. The law of the jungle, yeah. In my book, I actually have a, a refutation of the law of the jungle. And I don't memorize it. I don't memorize but uh, they, they call natural law the law of the jungle is, is what some of them do. It's, it's, like, it's like saying that you, you don't have any, um, well, it's like saying natural rights don't exist. So I, I don't know, I mean, my whole talk is a refutation of that. You don't, the natural rights don't exist. And the fact of the matter is, if you've got people in the jungle and they're violating each other's rights, then that's wrong and it's criminal. And, and so when he says jungle, what he's saying is anybody can do whatever they want. And, and, and the truth is anybody can do anything they want now, and the government does anything they want now. And so it's kind of the law of the jungle, but the government has its whole power you know, to do anything they want, and it's the law of the jungle for them, right? But, um, I mean, that, that's what he means by law of the jungle, is that people can do whatever they want. That's what's happening now in the government. And the, the fact of the matter is that some things are right and some things are wrong in the jungle or out of the jungle or in government or society or whatever. What he, what he gave them was the Hobbesian argument. Yeah. There are no natural rights in the state of nature, right? So yeah. the, the response is, well, I don't buy that. Yeah, there, there are, are natural rights in the state of nature. Yeah, there's natural rights yeah, in both states. Is that well, your question? Well, and, you know, there was the whole, you know, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. But I think that now we can see that men are not angels, and therefore, why would you give them a bunch of guns and say that you have the right to lord that, that power over me? 
And so, I mean, if he's so worried about the jungle, I mean, are special people going to be occupying the halls of government? Or is it going to be the same people he's scared of in the jungle? You know, I mean, that's, that's what you should ask him. Well, you could also <clears throat> ask him, so if, if there was no government, would he just start killing people? <laughs> no, it's a serious question. Because yeah. yeah. he, he's talking about humanity, which means he includes himself. I'm not, I, I would do this after you get your grade. But uh, <laughs> sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. But it's like the people who say, if there was no God, then we would just say, so, okay, so if you became an atheist, you'd just go around strangling hobos? I mean, were you throwing cats in blenders? I mean, is that your primal desire? You wake up in the morning and say, oh, I wish I could strangle my students, but there are these laws. I mean, no, no, okay, so, no. And, and if he says yes to that, then he's revealed his moral nature. And you can ask the other students in the class, I mean, how many times do you want to, you know, put drill bits through people's heads with nail guns or whatever, but they're just restrained because there might be cops around. Uh, and, and very few people actually want to do that. Remember, sociopathy is only one in 25 people. Uh, most people have a conscience, and most people don't want to do evil. Um, it takes a huge amount to actually get people to do evil. There's a reason you do all that basic training and shred people's personalities, right? So um, statistically, he's just way off the mark. Most people have empathy. Most people have a conscience. And fortunately, the people who don't have them end up in charge. Oh. <laughs> and if you doubt that, you know, one thing you can look at is very plain. You know, uh, Stephen Cattell and I were driving here. We drove, you know, three hours on the highways. And all these people driving around these huge steel contraptions all over the car, you know, all over the road at 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour. And we're somehow all staying within each other's lanes. We're letting each other pass. And we're more or less getting along. And it's a state of anarchy, really. At any one moment, anyone, any driver could just blow up the whole system. You know, just by swerving to the right and causing a pileup. It doesn't tend to happen. It sometimes happens, but it doesn't tend to happen. We were joking about this, this belief that gov government magically keeps society together. And we imagined that, like, there would come a news broadcast, you know, on the radio that says, government has been abolished. And then what would happen to the drivers? Like, oh my God! Well, I better just you know <laughs> put the blindfold on. I'm going. I'm going 80. Um, I, I would also just point out that the mistake is that society and the state are the same, and the state has foisted this myth on us, especially since the, the modern nation state, right? So they're trying to give you a contrast. You either have chaos, which is the lack of society, or the state. So they're identifying state with society. And of course, the state is the enemy of order in society. Society has always existed in human history without the state, especially without the modern state. Societies clearly exist without the, without the state. So the, the choice is the state being a predator on society and order and making things worse, not chaos. Yeah, and his theory can't, the Hobbesian theory doesn't explain things as obvious as eBay where you can't resolve your disputes with the government. It's all based on rating systems, all based on voluntary transaction. The eBay is, is international, the sums are so small, like, pay, like PayPal, that you can't explain this. It, they live in a stateless environment, all of their disputes. 400,000 people get their primary income off eBay. None of them have access to any government, any court to resolve their disputes, and it all works fantastically. I mean, they're not cannibals. <laughs> Mostly. I, I do a lot of eBay trading, but very few bite marks from my PayPal account. Uh, and, and even states are in a state of anarchy with respect to each other and even internally to the state itself. So how does Hobbes explain this? I mean, if you have to have a, a super lord contract enforcer above society to make people abide by rules, who's making the international states of the world respect each other's rights? And even if you say, well, we have to have one super state, who's making the, the people in that state obey each other's rules and orders and 
and this. There's there's no one above that. So you don't, if you don't need it for states to exist, you don't need it for us to exist. Well, the, yeah. Yeah, Alfred Kuzan has a great article, Do We Ever Get Out of Anarchy? And the point is, everyone is always in anarchy. What kind of anarchy do we want? Do we want the anarchy of the government, of the state, or do we want a private property anarchy? Okay, well, we've got the last question of the conference. No pressure, pressure on the last question of the conference. It all comes down to this. Uh, thanks, for, uh, <laughs> uh, thanks all for being here. I wanted to talk about, just go back to the parenting thing really quickly. Um, my parents are traditionally Vietnamese, so you know, it was obviously believed there was a fine line between spanking and uh, discipline or whatever. But that's not really my question. Uh, my question is, you know, there's this big problem in middle class America when it comes to doping kids with ADD pills and, uh, you know, turning kids into zombies and problems with so man, is that, and that's the new form of discipline. And that's what I think. So what, what is the solution to that besides my parents spanking me because of, you know, or if they can't explain it to me, you know, they shouldn't, you know, throw pills mm. at me either. So that's, that's my question. If I could, Ellison, uh, I'll just do a very brief thing, but. Uh, do you know that um, children, there's one circumstance under which children do not, even when diagnosed with ADD symptoms, there's one circumstance in which children do not display ADD symptoms, particularly boys. Anyone want to guess which circumstance that is? I'm, yes, maybe, but Playing that's outside. not the one. No. <laughs> Watching TV. No. Father. When they're with the father. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, as we all know, there's been a massive, catastrophic change in, in families throughout the West the result of the welfare state and a variety of other things. Uh, this the psychotropic drugging of children is, is largely, if not almost exclusively, correlated with no fathers, right? I mean, we, we've had this weird experiment where we just said, okay, well, one parent can do the job of two. Yeah. And that doesn't work. I mean, uh, as many, many studies have pointed out, there's no single more negative predictor for your outcome in life than coming from a single-parent household. I mean, it's, it's more important than race, it's more important than how wealthy you are, it's more important than your physical appearance, it's more important than your health even. So we've had this experiment where we've said, okay, let's get rid of the dads and let's put the government in its place. And that has produced uh, a, a pretty wild crew uh, of offspring, particularly, again, particularly among the boys. Um, and this is also because uh, corporal punishment is used much more strongly uh, and harshly in single mother households uh, and uh, so this, of course, uh, adds to it as well. And so, you know, th there's no short-term solution for it. Um, I think that we have to recognize that it's really bad social policy uh, to do anything which promotes fatherlessness. I mean, I just read this statistic. Uh, half of children now are born out of wedlock in, in America. It's 48% or something like that. And I'm not a Christian, but I do love the Christians for bringing this up repeatedly. I mean, every time I go to, to websites, Ann Coulter hammers this point mercilessly, and she's a staunch Christian. And every time I go to websites pointing out the issue of fatherlessness uh, and, and its effects on, on children, uh, they are religious websites. And 
God bless them for doing it. I think it's fantastic because you don't see a lot of this stuff on the left. Um, so if you really want to start dealing with the, the drugging of children, you have to look at the behaviors that are causing children to be in need of drugging. And yes, the schools are getting worse. You know, ever since they put the rule in which you can't fire teachers in the 60s, educational standards have declined. Uh, there's been a strong focus. Uh, Christina Hoff Summers uh, talks about this in, in Who Stole Feminism. There's been a very strong realignment uh, so for the needs of girls in schools at the expense of what boys like. So there's a lot of sitting and, and memorizing and chanting and not a lot of getting out and doing stuff, which appeals more to boys, which is why boys are doing so terrifically badly in school. And there's no outcry about this, which is horrendous. Um, so yes, education is a problem for sure. Um, and and uh, the last thing I'll say is, at, at the same time as we have the, the, the free market is, is working to give children the most amazing toys in the history of the world. I mean, the, the things that are available for kids, right? I mean, I lent my phone to this lovely lady's completely wonderful home, unschooled children, you know. Good job. Well done. Um, so they're getting, the free market is stimulating them, right, with, with uh, iPads and, and, and uh, Nickelodeon and, and uh, the movies, 3D stereoscopic 900-inch televisions <laughs> that basically invade your living dreams. I mean, they're just incredible things that are going on. So the state is, is becoming more boring. I mean, like I think only 7% of, of U.S. schools now have regular um, uh, recess. I mean, so they're locked inside in these horrible sardine can rows, incredibly boring, uninspired teachers. The boys, the boys are incredibly bored. And that's the one side it's getting worse. On the other side, they're getting this unbelievable stimulation and education and gaming and all of this stuff from the free market. So this is a real polarity yeah, yeah. for kids that is just incredible. Uh, it, it, I think they could stand school a lot more if it wasn't compared to their life outside of school in the free market where these toys are just unbelievably great for them. And I think it's going to double the Flynn effect in a generation, you know, that six-point gain in IQ every generation. This is going to be the smartest group of kids. And the kids who, if you talk about how crappy school is, they've got a real comparison uh, with, with what they got outside of school. Yeah, I don't know if it's true all over the country, but in Alabama, the kids in, in high school all uh, have smartphones and they're allowed to carry them, and they, they invent their own little world for themselves mm -hmm. digitally. Uh, you know, it's like Snapchat every two seconds, and, you know, I was you know, texting the other. And this is what they do with each other. They form their own digital communities that, that exist on top of the existing public school structure. Uh, I, I think there would be some kind of like prison revolt if they tried to confiscate all the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be interesting. Yeah. I, I just want to address a different aspect of this, and this has to do with the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, do no harm. Um, now, Ritalin, Ritalin, you know, drugs are given kids, you're intensively changing their minds. I mean, just interfering with the natural integrity of their mind. And, and I don't think it's plausible that so many children need this drug. And you're changing the way that they react to situations and the way they feel about things probably for the rest of their lives. And, and so, uh, and I think, you know, just generally speaking, I think you know, in medicine, uh, people tend to confuse the intention of the treatment with the treatment. And so it's like they, they think, that, you know, like surgery, they tend to think it's like changing uh, spark plugs in a car when you cut into a person. Uh, actually, all these interventions are, you know, very serious and, and, and disrupt the natural, you know, order of the body. And, and so, and, and, and if you ever, I mean, you might tend to think that, then you go in for surgery, you'll find out uh, with all the complications that it really isn't like spark plugs, okay? 
And it's the same thing with these with these drugs, you know. And so, you know, it has to do with the burden of proof again. Uh, you know, the doctors have a burden of proof to say there's that the side effects, you know, or that there's no serious side effects. And so I think there's like a very serious uh, crime going on here in pumping these drugs in these kids and what's going on with their minds. So. And they're not treating anything. Yeah. There's no there's no test for any of this stuff. It's right. it's it, they're treating a metaphor. Well, thank you, panelists, and thank you for coming out. Yes, thank you. that I brought with me, I would love to see them vanish. If you want to pay, they're 15 a piece, but I really don't want to keep them, so if you just have a burning passion for one, and you don't want to pay, just walk out, I won't consider you a thief. It'll be like the olive bar, you know, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the I'm going to pick one up. I'm glad to sign anything to